This is Sarah Bordeaux, and you are listening to PodSam, the podcast channel of Sam Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. On this episode, we're bringing you a huddle from our sister publication, Adventure Park Insider. Operating during a pandemic is no mean feat, and the financials of doing so are no exception. How do we ensure that operations remain financially resilient while adhering to the limitations meant to stem the spread of the new coronavirus? On this huddle, co-hosted by Strategic Adventures Chief Client Advocate Paul Cummings, we discuss where we go from here and some of the decisions operators might consider in the coming months to ensure a resilient business in the future. While we will be discussing financial decision-making on this episode, please note that none of the speakers are licensed financial advisors. Before taking any action based off this conversation, please seek financial advice from licensed experts. We'll start the discussion here with Sam and API publisher, Olivia Rowan. Thank you for joining us today for our Adventure Park Insider Huddle. I'm Olivia Rowan, the publisher of Adventure Park Insider Magazine, and with me is Sarah Badeev. She's the associate editor. Uh, this conversation is going to be co-hosted by Paul Cummings of Strategic Adventures, and we'll be speaking with Keith Jacobs, uh, who is the president of Experiential Systems, and Lee Kerfoot, who's the owner of Brannard Zipline Tour and Kerfoot Canopy Tour in Minnesota, and Charles Park, who's the Executive Vice President of the Louisville Mega Cavern in Kentucky. Um, But first, we are going to have ACCT Policy Director Scott Andrews um, share with us a little bit about um, what's going on over at ACCT and efforts that they're working on. Um, So, Scott, you want to give us a little update? Yeah, thanks, Olivia. Well, we're really excited to have launched Operation Accreditation last week. And while we know that it's going to be a tough time for folks to take that on. We're hoping that people can see that as a project moving forward that helps them develop some resiliency within the industry and, and develop a better understanding of their use of the standards and their ability to communicate that to the public. We're also um, in the just about to launch a registration for our conference in Spokane in January of 2021. And hoping that between now and then everybody wears a mask, stays socially distanced so we can have that event without any trouble. Um, And one other piece we're doing is we're staying tightly connected with the folks in the UK and in our industry and trying to learn from their experience of opening, closing, reopening, um, juggling um, a wide variety of regulations like we are here in North America, trying to really learn from what we can from those folks and share that with with our members and, and with the public. Great, thanks Scott. Um, so yeah, we, we will be following in closely to uh, our, our changing landscape here and um, uh, on what's going on with ACCT. So we'll check your, your website often um, on what's going on with the show and all of that. So, um, so let's get started with our topic. We all know um, how challenging a time this has been for both operators and suppliers in the industry. and. Many are opening, um, but operating under um, restrictions. And as we heard a little bit in this conversation before we got started, that those restrictions are changing yet again uh, to more mask wearing, um, you know, guidelines. And and, uh, so it's it's a constantly changing 
situation. So today's conversation will be a discussion about how operators can remain financially resilient through all of this um, and while adhering to all those limitations. And we'll discuss some of the actions that operators should be taking to navigate this season um, and prepare for what we hope will be a healthy rebound next year. Um, so it's important to you know, have the things that we can do now that uh, help us now, but also be looking, you know, at that 10,000 foot view about things that we can do now that will help us rebound as quickly as possible uh, next year. So let's hand it off to Paul Cummings of Strategic Adventures. Uh, Paul, you want to kick us off? Absolutely. Thanks. So uh, I am Paul Cummings, Strategic Adventures. We are a business consultancy in the adventure business field. And we, as many of you have been racking our brains as to how to handle um, the pandemic, the changes to business, the ever shifting um, legality changes and uh, policy changes that are happening almost on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, at the very beginning of the call, I had mentioned that I just got an alert that our governor is having a press conference on COVID-19 and my world may change by the end of this call. So we'll see how that uh, that's affected there. So we're going to talk today. We're going to cover quite a few topics. We may not get to all of them. Um, the panelists that we've chosen, um, none of us have a problem with the gift of gab. So we'll try to keep it concise as possible, but if we don't get to everything, uh, maybe we'll have a part two come up later. Uh, I've not talked to API about that, so I'm just throwing that out there. It's my decision, apparently. So today we're going to talk about things like capacity issues, um, supply and demand um, changes that we've seen, staffing, finances, we'll dabble in insurance a little bit. I do want to put out a caveat that myself nor any of the people who are going to be speaking are licensed financial advisors. So before you take any action on what we say, please seek financial and legal advice from trained professionals. So uh, I've watched them on TV and I still don't know what I'm doing in that regard. So uh, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, so to, we're going to start off with uh, with Lee of Kerfoot Canopy Tours and Brainerd Zip Lines. And Lee, I'd like to just talk to you about what you've seen in changes from when the pandemic started in terms of capacity, supply versus demand, and how that has evolved. And uh, after that, then what are your, how are you looking to the future to make any changes in that regard? All right. Thanks, Paul. So we were shut down in April and most of at the end of May, we started to open up for single family groups. And by June, we were opening up for mixed families. But it was definitely a demand issue at first. The demand wasn't there. We had plenty of guides. And then as the summer progressed and people got more comfortable with the environment and the, the itch that they needed to scratch to get outdoors and recreate, increased and we were fortunate to get a few good pieces of press the demand definitely has outpaced our supply so we've progressively gotten busier but simultaneously or maybe compounding that we used to do groups of 10 and we've scaled that back to groups of eight unless it's like a family of 10 or the, the boy scout troop that's all together so we have reduced our tour capacities from 10 down to eight and we've been fortunate that the demand has picked up progressively. And um, I mean, it's 
I, yeah, I'm really fortunate. I feel grateful that the demand has picked up so much. Nice. And you're in um, kind of the Twin Cities suburbs area. Um, Charles, you run the Louisville Mega Cavern. You're down in Kentucky. Um, what has that looked like for you as this has evolved? So um, to Lee's point, um, so we were closed from basically uh, the middle of March, March 17th all the way through, I believe it was June 17th, and we reopened at that point in time. Our issue, uh, because of the two-month delay, you know, we've obviously had to uh, undergo some structural changes from a personnel standpoint, and so uh, we've been in the unfortunate position to have to either furlough or lay people off. And and so when we actually, because we we actually didn't have any opening in sight, uh, we, we thought it was going to be end of May, it just kept on dragging, um, and so, um, but we've been very, very fortunate. Uh, so when we did reopen, our issue was never uh, a demand issue. It was actually a supply issue. So we did start at limited capacity at eight people for zip lines. Uh, we were able to gradually increase that to our normal capacity of 13. Um, and so our issue has never been a, um, a demand issue per se. It's always been a supply issue. We just couldn't find enough people uh, from a personnel standpoint, and then some people opted not to come back, whether because of um, uh, of COVID and, and their concerns for COVID, whether it was because of the CARES Act, whether they found another opportunity, whatever that case may be. Uh, so we we just couldn't find enough qualified personnel uh, with respect to um, zipline guys. And obviously, when you're open, when you get to open in the middle of June, you can't just go say, okay, guy. Go, go go be a zipline guy on June 18th. There, there is some training time that, that is required. And so um, just by virtue of how we opened or when we opened, it was a little bit difficult for us to actually get to a point where we could have the actual supply. Uh, but we've been very blessed. I mean, very, very blessed in terms of the fact that the demand's always been there. So, um, and phones are ringing off the hook and we just can't keep up with it. Cool. Uh, Keith, you're with Experiential Systems. You're a uh, professional vendor member and builder of such fun attractions and training and things like this. Um, from your perspective, how has this affected you? I know you work both in the commercial and in the educational field, um, building and training and inspecting. How has the impact been on your side with this? Yeah, so I mean, we, we did, uh, State of Illinois, where our office is, issued a shelter in place order and so we did do a month and a half uh, shut down with staff at home doing some office work limited furloughed all of our our non uh, salaried um, staff for that period of time and about a, a month and a half later we were slowly able to begin work in a few states uh, doing inspections and starting uh, maintenance work but you know the majority um, you know some 64 percent summer camps uh, did not open uh, this year, or they didn't open their uh, challenge courses or certain activities. So we certainly, um, you know, more than half of our staff have, have been furloughed and or worked just occasionally since we have staff in over um, 12 states. You know, we've been able to minimize our travel, uh, trying to follow the state laws um, about travel restrictions that were in place, allowing them to work in a, a one, two state area to minimize any contact exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, training, you know, maybe we maybe have done about 15, 18% uh, of the trainings that we would normally do at this point in time. Uh, some of that is 
lack of uh, interest with the closures. And some of that has to do with organizations and us not being able to come up on the, um, the agreement on what it is that we're willing to do and how we're willing to do it to protect our staff, where we're only doing trainings with clients who have uh, at least two staff that have already gone through one of our trainings before who can serve as the hands, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially within the ACA world, um, following the CDC guidelines for the intact group, allowing them to touch each other and be in close proximity with us being far enough away to maintain social distance. And we're jumping from program uh, to program. Uh, but the phone is, you know, uh, ringing a little bit more. We have clients that are opening up for August and planning on opening up um, for September. So uh, the industry is opening uh, slowly for some of these things. We've also had organizations close as a result of positive um, tests at their organizations, not wanting to go through uh, the process again. Um, and, and so that's kind of a, a bit of a roller coaster ride, I think, for those operations. Yeah. How do you foresee that changing uh, within the next year if we are allowed to open? How do you think your is your staffing model going to remain the way it was previous, or is it has it really changed the staff model for your business going forward? You know, it has changed our staff model. We had we had already um, you know have we have a, in addition to our staff we have seven um, other friendly competitors that we work with and do some staff sharing with so that's enabled us to provide opportunities both for our staff and for um, these other organizations again with the travel situations where we've been able to subcontract or be subcontractors mm -hmm. um, it, it does appear that organizations are pursuing construction and maintenance at this point in time some of them have funding for it some programs have put it on hold uh, you know but certainly if there's another uh, shelter in place as is being discussed in at least three states right now that'll certainly have an impact uh, but we think we have a model uh, where our staff feel competent traveling no more than two in a car one in a hotel room primarily working outdoors uh, mm -hmm. where we can maintain our personal um, safety right up until the point in time that you know training occurs training is where there's more exposure to people outside the group and and where we feel like we need to take more precautions and uh, and have a more intimate relationship with the client before uh, proceeding with that. Sure, sure. Um, Charles, Louisville Maggie Caverns, back to you with uh, pretty much the same question. I know that your staffing model has changed. Can you also talk about how um, you've been able to kind of retain some of the more key staff that you have in that regard too? Yeah, so um, great question. I, I think um, during the two-month crisis, we were able to keep our you know, a lot of our salaried employees. Um, and, and that's just because of the pure diversification of our family of companies. So our family owns a number of different companies from third-party warehousing. We own some real estate. So we do a lot of industrial real estate. We have probably 700,000 square feet under lease. We own a um, Mother of Recycling, which is a, a structural fill operation for the cavern. Uh, we own Mega Cavern, and then um, and then even in the course of this, we actually uh, formed our own digital agency. With me and and a partner of mine, we formed our own digital agency. So I think in the course of all of this, uh, that's one of the things that we really had to look at is really how do we go about diversification? Number one, and when we look at all of our employee base, we kind of we kind of say, okay, everybody kind of helps each other, even though we're all technically different companies. Um, going to the mega cavern, when we started bringing people back, um, we were very um, thoughtful in terms of who we wanted to bring back um, because it was an opportunity for us to really um, strengthen the culture. 
And so uh, one of the things that we did very differently and probably something that's kind of antithetical in the market is like, hey, you know, you want to cut wage costs, we'll cut wage costs. And I didn't look at it that way. I looked at the fact that, and we all know this, that we always have bad eggs and we always hire poorly. And there's this incredible genius that said, hire slow, fire fast. Um, I don't know who that was, but I believe he's pretty renowned within the ACCT world. Um, so one of the things that we did was we, we were very selective in how we hired. We actually started to increase our hourly wages and we actually reduced our staffing. So we, we were very thoughtful in reducing our staffing. We looked at every single day and we're like, okay, which days should we not operate? Because there, there may be days that you may be operating at a loss. Or can, we, can you defer some of that demand to the days that you are operating heavily? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we were looking at burnout of our staff because we, were, uh, we had a smaller staff, but we started to reward them better. So a smaller staff reward them better. It was kind of like, hey, we're going to go on a Chick-fil-A model and, and, and really think of quality of experience, quality of our, uh, of our staff, and we really wanted to reward them better because... I think there was a point in time where I counted 11 people like doing absolutely nothing at that very moment in time. And I'm like, why are we paying all these people? And so, and two people would be doing all the work. And so, so we, we actually wanted to refocus and hire the right talent and the right staff. And we really wanted to say, Hey, we want you to be here for a very long time. We understand you might be a college, um, in college, but we want you to be here next summer and we want you to be here the following summer and we want to really invest in our talent. Nice. Uh, Lee Kerfoot, I know that you have um, you have a two-tier pricing structure that you've implemented. How has that helped with uh, staffing and what ways have your staffing models changed as well? Yeah, so we've been really fortunate. We had a great culture and a lot of the, the Sky Guides returned. And from a, a pricing perspective, we have a midweek pricing versus a weekend pricing. And it's $89 during the week, $109 on the weekend. And so for people who are price sensitive, then that pushes the, the demand for when we're a little slower uh, versus on the weekend when we've got plenty of, of uh, demand. And, and that's been really helpful for kind of spreading the, the, the guests out a little bit, spreading them out to, to help us provide more stability. And uh, but the, the guides and, and the returning people, the culture was really, really critical. And it's back to that hiring. And, you know, we do an incentive of $200 for a guide if they refer someone and then we hire them and they make it like 60 days. We'll, we'll do that because we think birds of the same feather flock together. So if we like you and, and we're probably going to like your friends. Nice. Nice. Um, switching topics now a little bit to um, finance and Lee, I want to stay with you on this one. Um, when this hit, what kind of financial steps did you take um, when this first started? And then how did that change as, as the season went forward? Sure. So we, have a standing line of credit with the bank. And I set this up a couple of years ago. I fortunately haven't needed to draw down on it, but we had that just as a, a, before we knew 
about the PPP. We're like, okay, even if we, we're not open for the season and we have to just close, we, we think we can make it. We'll be fine. It's nervous, but we can make it. And then they had the PPP and the EIDLs. We applied for PPP and we were fortunate to get that uh, right away. And uh, that helped. And then, um, so that, that kind of helped carry us through. And, and, and what we also do some things, we're really proactive. I read a book called Profit First. And for those of you who have not read it, the general theory is that instead of revenue minus expenses equals profit, it's revenue minus your profit equals expenses. And so they advocate that you set aside funds for different things. And so every month I take a percent of my revenue and put it into a separate bank account. One of them is profit, one of them is taxes, and I'm creating a new one for reserves, but it's reserved for replacement or reserved for emergency. And so we're just trying to be proactive to, to have that extra um, cushion if we need it, because we, we, it's hard. I mean, every single person on this call, you probably, you think you know what's going to happen this week, maybe next week, but three weeks from now, we don't know. We just hope for the best. So that's a few steps that we're doing. Um, the one last thing that I went through the mental exercise of is that if I have to draw down on the line of credit, and if I'm going to have to go to the lender, then I prepared a plan to say to the lender, man, if I'm in that situation and I'm going to go to the lender to ask for money, I want to show him my plan of how I'm, how I'm projecting this, the winter, what I'm doing to, to rein in my costs, what I'm doing to manage the, the uh, to, to try to help with the revenue. And one of the components of that, that I look at with all of my costs, and especially this spring was saying, hey, is the juice worth the squeeze? And so for us, like we had a year round marketing agency, we trimmed that back previously because the juice wasn't worth the squeeze in the winter. And we looked at things like call tracking metrics, which I firmly believe in, but we're just too small for that. And that juice wasn't worth the squeeze. And so we're really, really trying to apply that to, to everything and uh, that all of our expenses kind of questioning that. And uh, so that's helped us trim some of the fat that we had justified. We kind of said, oh, yeah, we should do that. Either, I don't remember why we justified it, if it was to keep up with someone, if it was, it seemed like a good idea and it would save us or we'd be more efficient. No, it, it just isn't worth it. Um, and so we, that's something that we're always kind of evaluating now, or it's a top of mind question is looking at your own expenses. Is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah. And that's something that I've noticed too, even in our business is that, you know, when times are good, it's easy for those little expenses and sometimes big expenses just to creep up and your month to month outlay. Um, when you have enough capital coming in, it's not a big deal. But as soon as you start feeling that pinch, man, all of a sudden you're like, do I really need Spotify premium? <laughs> you know, I have all these other things. Do I need to do that? Do I need to do the ad tracking? Um, do I need to maybe get more focused on my marketing? And instead of trying to do a shotgun approach, maybe I need to get a little bit more direct with my, my main line of business and how do I do that? Um, Charles, I wanted to, with Louisville Mega Caverns, I want to go back to you real quick, talking about marketing. 
um, you had an interesting marketing shift as well that you did. Yeah. So, um, so our two largest expense buckets are wages and marketing. Um, and we, and truth be told, we have a pretty healthy marketing budget. But I think one of the things that we really looked at was, is to Lee's point, is the juice worth the squeeze? And and um, you know, unfortunately, we're a large enough organization where we we actually have a director of marketing, and she did come from an agency. And you know, she's she's been giving us this guidance and wisdom and advising us and saying, hey. I'm not sure we're getting everything that we should be getting from our digital marketing agency. And so one of the things as COVID, the silver lining of COVID was we're like, okay, I think we should start moving on from our marketing agency. And so uh, the opportunity for us to control our marketing expenses, I mean, we've probably spent year to year uh, or month to month, so June of 2019 to, or July of 2019 to July of 2020, we probably spent 120th of what we've spent. And that's a huge number. And so I think that's one of the things that we really tried to do. And we pivoted and we said, hey, we have the talent here. Let's go do our own Facebook ads. Let's go do our own geofencing. Let's go do, create our own lookalike ads. Let's do our own search advertising, blah, 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 blah. And we had the we actually had the talent here to to go do that, and so uh, as a result of that, we, we we started to say, hey, should we create our own digital agency? And that's what that's what we ended up doing. And we just serviced kind of the Louisville Mega Cavern and and some of the other companies that we own, and and we're realizing, um, and and our director of marketing is saying, hey, there is a lot of opaqueness when you give money to a digital marketing agency. And so if they're, they're unable to give you actual receipts of what they actually spend, is that X number of dollars, $5,000 actually going to advertising or are they, is it $1,000 going to their advertising and they're keeping the 4,000, whatever that case may be. And so it was an opportunity for us to go back and say, okay, let's, let's go redo this and from and like I said, demand isn't an issue for us. So, uh, so we've been very fortunate in that regard. Nice, um, Keith. I know you took a little bit different approach um, to your marketing. Some similarities. Uh, explain what what you did with your business and how your marketing changed. Yeah, we were I think uh, lucky enough to have some liquidity at the beginning of this, and like Lee had an established um, line of credit, and and with that brought some confidence. Um, in this marketplace. And that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges and uh, people on furlough and the phone not ringing as much. Uh, but we invested in marketing as a, as a company owner. We've been um, pretty much as busy as we wanted to be. I haven't been interested in growing the company over the you know past five years from where we are. We turned down uh, a fair amount of work um, every year and referred out to competitors. And with the phone ringing last, we uh, hired a PR and marketing firm. We um, redid multiple uh, websites and online stores and uh, newsletters and mailings. And we, we took an opportunity to look at what are the under-marketed products and services that we as a company do, um, things that have been niche with a few of our clients here and there. We've really never marketed it out to the mainstream and it's been really successful. I mean, we closed another contract this morning um, for a playground installation, something that we, we've always, we've had access to this, these materials and these companies for years. And we've, 
done little offshoots and we're just marketing it um, full force to programs and it's it's being effective at this point in time. And it, it, it's a risk um, to do that. And, and in relationship to, um, to Charles, my wife is a partner in a PR and marketing firm. So it's a you know closely held company where I can have conversations at night um, about what's going on and where those dollars are are being spent. Uh, but you know, over the years, I barely, if ever, used their firm's um, services. You know, once or twice, and uh, to go full force uh, has been has been worth it, especially at a time where we see most of our uh, competitors um, retracting back from electronic and social media and uh, print for obvious for obvious reasons. Um, um, it makes sense, but we've we've just been fortunate enough to go the other direction here. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing that most of the people that I've talked to who don't have lines of credit, um, I think it'll start opening back up in the near future, but from March through now, lines of credit have access to new lines of credit have pretty much dried up uh, with a few exceptions. Uh, we've even had clients tell us that their lines of credit got shrunk because the bank had too much potential liability out there. So they had a $50,000 line the bank came and told them, well, now you have 20,000 you can use. So one piece of advice that I've gotten from uh, a business guru that I follow was if you have a line of credit, pull it all now. The, uh, the interest rate on that line of credit is worth the peace of mind that you'll have knowing that you have this cash in the bank. Um, and again, I'm not a financial advisor, um, but I give advice on finance. So, but that's what was uh, relayed to me. And it seemed like pretty solid advice uh, to me as well for that. Um, you had mentioned that you had certain underserved areas and that you had supplies and materials around um, for this. What types of things have you run into uh, limitation wise on supplies, materials, anything like that? Yeah, um, you know, as a construction company, um, some of the issues are certainly at this point, there's, you know, some newer uh, travel bans in place for certain states or, you know, self-reported, um, certainly for the county that our office is in, those are in effect um, in the greater Chicagoland area. Uh, but lumber, treated lumber, um, you know, we had a recent project, we had to go to four different stores. We have a, we work with a, a lumber yard, a distributor. And they were, they said they wouldn't have four by fours for three to four weeks. Mm. Um, and that what we found is that the smaller stores are doing uh, better with that. And, you know, some of the equipment, um, we've been pretty lucky dealing with uh, Canadian and U.S. manufacturers of fall protection equipment, harnesses, ropes. Uh, but some of the um, French and European companies, their shutdowns have affected, you know, getting pencil products, some IC products, you know, they're, um, with their factories being shut down and, and they have a much larger, broader distribution channel internationally. So the run on supplies has been harder for those, but where the, the U.S. and Canadian companies have been um, a lot better to work with on those hardwares. And we've even had some suppliers reach out to us and offer us um, discounts. I mean, we've been lucky enough working with our, uh, our collaborative with the Alliance to get uh, rental equipment cost down using a co-op model, getting rope, rapid links, and and um, several other services um, to you know up to 20% in discount by being able to apply bulk purchase models, and so that's been really helpful in dropping some uh, costs while um, all this other stuff's been going on. It's been helpful with cash flow. Yeah, are there any shortages that you foresee happening in either the near term or long term? 
Yeah, I would worry about any, I mean, any hardware coming out of uh, China, Korea, places that are having additional lockdowns, right? So parts of those countries um, have had other rounds of shelter in place again. So I think we're going to see a hard time with um, some of that galvanized drop forge um, components uh, that come out of there at some point in time. And I think, you know, there are multiple manufacturers. Now's a good time to uh, source distributorships with more than one uh, company. We, for almost every product that we use, with some exception, we have more than uh, one sourcing agent to to get it from. And I highly recommend you get away from sole source in a market like this, even before you need it, so you can get through the credit application uh, process. We've even had some vendors go, you know, they've shrunk their uh, billable terms from 30 days down to 15 days um, as they're trying to protect uh, their cash flow. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure some of their concern is they'll give you 30, but you take 45. Yeah. Where if you if they give you 15, you take 30. It's yeah, it's business as usual for them. So um, Lee with Kerfoot, I wanted to uh, when we were talking, you had mentioned that initially you had uh, problems getting some of the PPE uh, supplies for your staff. Can you kind of talk about how uh, that evolved and if you're seeing any difference there now? Yeah, we really wanted to get the visors for the front of the uh, helmets. We thought that would be the best experience and the best product and still allowed in, in the state of Minnesota. And so that was tough. We really scoured the traditional sites, you know, oh, we, we, we you know, all the traditional vendors really struggled to find that. What I had to do was go to like the chainsaw store of Minneapolis and the lawn care store of wherever that had this visor that they're like, yeah, well, we're happy to sell it. And it just happened to be, of course, compatible with the, the helmets that we were looking for. But so that was tough. Um, but we finally got all the visors and we like it because the, the nonverbal communication with the, the smile, we think that's really, really important. And, um, you know, it's a non-permeable barrier, but there are some guides who want um a neck gaiter or a, a, a mask, and, and that's fine. We, we allow them to do it, but uh, we like our preference is for the, the visor. It was it was really tough to find it at first, but we eventually were able to get it. Yeah, it seems to me like right now um, for larger operators who can order in bulk, it's easier to get some of these uh, Supplies, but I know if you go to if you're a small operator, you're going to Costco to try to get hand sanitizer, for example, you're allowed one bottle um, yeah. per purchase. So unless you have every employee of yours has a Costco card and they can run through there and, and get that kind of thing. I know masks in our area um, were pretty tight as well to get just those regular um, uh, the blue uh, medical grade ones. Uh, a box of fifty, you could get one, and that's it. Yeah. Um, have there been any other supplies um, that you've seen that have been either tough to source or that you've heard out there that's supplies tightening up? Yeah, I mean, the hand sanitizers were, were tough. Um, we've got hand washing stations, and those weren't easy to get a plethora of. Um, and, and just the, the we, we ordered a box of like the N95 masks, at least that's what they, I don't know if they truly are, but that's what I thought they were. And those weren't cheap and then were not easy to find. I think it's probably become a little easier until, like I said, at the beginning of this call, the governor has 
now said masks are going to be mandatory for indoors. And so I think it'll be another uh, pinch of supply, you know, another run on those, just like there was toilet paper. So, yeah. Um, Charles with the Louisville Mega Caverns, how do you handle people who are either showing up with no personal protection equipment or showing up with inadequate equipment? What's kind of your methodology for dealing with that? Yeah, so um, so one of the things that we uh, we required straight out of the gate was we required that every guest wear a mask. And so, uh, you know, you, you put it in kind of the, uh, the reservation confirmation. If they're calling, we tell them, hey, uh, it, it is required to visit the facility. Um, but the fortunate thing for us is that um, we also do temp checks. Uh, for every guest as well. So before they even enter the facility, you have to have a mask and you have to have a temp check. Um, if you didn't have a mask, then we would give it to you. Uh, and we were giving away masks left and right until the state mandate came down and, and that actually slowed the burn of those masks. And we were actually coming to a point where we were gonna start charging for the masks. But since the state mandate is coming down, mm -hmm. uh, we don't feel that there's a need to charge for the masks at this point. But yeah, that's how, that's honestly how we handled it. Yeah. Um, so Lee, you had mentioned uh, during one of our previous conversations about, you know, in terms of adjusting your marketing and you were really being very proactive about looking at your business volume um, moving forward and kind of longer term bookings. Can you uh, give us a little bit of detail on that? Yeah. So one of the things I look at every at the end of every month is I say, at least this is what I think you were referring to, is I track how many riders I have booked for. So at the end of July, I look at how many riders I ended up with, but I also look at how many riders I have booked for August and then again for September and again for October. So I call that my booking pace. And I'm looking at that kind of proactively to say, well, in the month of July, how many riders did I book for August? And I'm comparing that to last year. So I'm trying to be proactive to say, oh my gosh, I'm way behind last year. Well, to me, I feel like that's an opportunity that I can still solve that problem versus looking at the financial statement for June and saying, oh man, we ended with fewer riders than last year. Well, it's too late to do something about it by the time it's on the income statement. So I'm, I'm constantly looking at the writers on the books for the future months to, to try to prepare and say, okay, man, I'm behind. I better, how can I um, get more out of this? Uh, you know, how can I, uh, what do I need to do? Do I better send some more emails or I better increase my pay-per-click spend or, uh, you know, do some, something. And so I'm really trying to look forward with that. And uh, so I, I recommend people do it. I think it's at least for the, the canopy tour, that's really helpful for like an adventure park business where the booking window is really narrow. That might be harder, uh, but that works for us. Lee, I have a, this is Rick Call here. I have a, another question for you, also based on our previous conversation, where you were talking about the, um, I would assume that if you have a limited number of people you can show up on, it's we've seen the same thing in the winter resort business where with limited capacity, people are trying to get as much revenue from each visitor as possible. How, how have you approached that? So I used to have a fairly aggressive 
discount for groups because I really wanted to push that midweek business. And this year we just haven't seen many of the groups and we've really scaled back or eliminated because there are groups, there's no one booking the group discount or the group discount rate for volume. So we've been able to really fill our tours at our normal prices or maybe a, a, a modest discount. And when I say modest, I mean like 10% for just some random, you know, friends and family discount or something. And so I think that going forward, we're not going to have the, any of the aggressive discounts that I was trying to justify in my mind in previous years. The, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. We weren't getting the volume to, to justify those discounts. And uh, so that's something that we're, well, that's a change we're making because of it. I was just going to say, Charles, you, you look like you're nodding here at some of the things Lee has said. Yeah. Uh, how have you been approaching groups? So, um, well, I, I want to touch base on the booking window. We have a probably a narrow booking window that, than Lee does. Um, and so one of the things that we did um, and when we brought in marketing in-house was we were able to turn on the faucet, turn off the faucet, turn on the faucet. And literally it is almost day by day. If we know we're completely booked, we'll go turn off the faucet and then redirect those funds to a different attraction. So that's what we've been doing um, just to touch base on that. Uh, for us, uh, we've actually been getting groups, and um, and so, and and a lot of it is, um, you know, we try to we try to accommodate them to the best extent that we can, uh, but we've been, but for the most part, when they by the time they ask to book, we're already booked out, and so uh, so to Lee's point, we're trying to get full price at every moment that we can. And then uh, if the groups are like two, three months out, we'll book them. Uh, but to Lee's point, yeah, that's that's what we do. Rick, I was gonna bring up when something Lee had said and something we heard on some of the industry huddles on, on the mountain resort industry, which was exactly what you said, Lee, which was, you know, the point of don't waste a good crisis. And they were able to look at a lot of their programs and say they've been, underperforming for a while and that and this has given them an, an excuse to kind of get rid of some of those those things so and I would be curious if anybody else you know on the call today John um, or Dick or anybody else if there are some um, changes that you've had to make that you think might carry over to next year we put John Hines owner of the Adventure Park at Sandy Springs on the spot I think that um I mean, I, I'm operating the park right now at about 30% of what my former capacity was. And I, and, and, and I'm on weekends, I've raised my price because I was selling out everything I was putting up. And legally, I probably could take more people right now, but I can't in good conscience do that because then I wouldn't be doing what I've promised my staff and their families that I would do. So instead I raised my price and I'm still, I'm already sold out for Saturday and I expect to sell out for Sunday and my weekday businesses stayed at the same price, but it's doing okay. Despite having no groups, I think we're going to live with this business model roughly for at least another 12 months. So I have to think about, this is the 10 ring. This is the part of my business that happens the easiest. I spend the least to get it. I, I depend on word of mouth. 
and all the ancillary fringe stuff that I built up over the last decade, an awful lot is, of that has got kicked to the curb because, you know, it's the incremental one or 2% ad, but it doesn't make sense to try and add one or 2% to the remaining 30%. It only makes sense to reach for those little incrementals when you're going full bore. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of thinking of 10 ring marketing and, and 10 ring activities. And if it's not absolutely in my bullseye, eh, you know, it's, it's being set aside and may never to return, uh, or at least not in, in the near future. Good point, John. Back to you, Paul. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to go um, back through the, the three here and just talk about um, what are some things that you'd recommend to operators moving forward? What are some just key pieces of wisdom that you would recommend that people do? Um, Keith, I wanted to start with you. We had talked about um, being cautious about going into personal debt to try to keep things afloat. Uh, could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously, as other people said, we don't know, as John was just talking, this is a model that you could be in for, for 12 months if there are additional um, stay-at-homes, right? So, you know, being able, businesses that have that line of credit, if it's, if it's tied to your business, great. There are options out there. Um, the Main Street loan program, um, there, and a lot of these programs tie themselves either either to your business or to your personal assets, depending on what you have access to. And, and certainly I would cautious anybody um, in a pandemic like this to borrow against their home or someplace that they need to leave in with so much business uncertainty. Um, when we looked at the, the Main Street loan and, and spoke to our bank about that and the, the Main Street loan, it owns your business when you default. It owns your inventory, which is not uncommon um, for um, for business loans. But a business loan could be split between some personal assets and and some things that are generally unsellable that a bank wouldn't wouldn't take. And so I, I just cautious as people are doing this. You know, I'm, I'm fingers crossed. It sounds like many businesses may be able to benefit from a second round of of PPP that Congress will allow for some of the harder hit businesses, whether or not our industry. Um, counts as one of those harder hit industries will be uh, will be there, but um, certainly, I mean, I, I say that, and I also say that having a line of credit is is key to you know, even though we haven't dipped into our line of credit as a result of COVID, it helps with confidence um, and being able to to make decisions knowing that there is a tomorrow um, if need be, and, and at a reasonable rate. Yeah, and I think that brings up an important point, too, is if you haven't been talking to your banker during this whole time, um, don't hesitate. Start reestablishing or rebuilding that relationship with your banker, because the more they understand your business and what you're going through, the more apt they're going to be able to help you. Um, they'll have things in mind. Uh, we have a client, their banker actually calls them about once a week to talk about different solutions for things that might might work. In some areas, there's disaster loans that have been made available because it's been hit so hard. Uh, tourism industry, things like that. So, um, yeah, that relationship with your banker, your relationship with your CPA, who can give you strong advice as to, you know, the uh, the no BS answer of where are you really in your finances? How much longer can you do this? Or what are some steps you can take? Uh, that kind of professional advice is key as well. Also, legal advice, um, Keith. One thing that we had talked about when we were getting ready for this was. Uh, people who are starting to cut back on their insurance 
and what possible ramifications that can have. Um, could you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, the, I've I've had some conversations with some other vendors. Their stories to tell, not mine. But you know, there are people who are looking at um, you know shutting down their business. You know, the, our industry took a big hit with uh, insurance premiums, at least on the the vendor side last year. Um, and I've had conversation with uh, two separate companies that are looking at either rolling only to professional liability, allowing themselves to just do uh, inspections and trainings or looking for uh, sale of their of their company and I'm sure they're not the only two uh, companies we've recently seen you know in an, an aerial adventure park was selling all of its equipment on uh, the zipline pros or challenge course pros on uh, on Facebook and I would expect to see um, some more of those but you know as an organization you know when people are considering that I mean every contract we sign with a university with the government, uh, with a school has a requirement that you maintain certain insurance premiums um, for a period of time. So, you know, the day you the day you cancel your general liability and maintain only professional, even if it's just a shelter for three or four months uh, to ride out uh, the storm, as I've heard some people discuss, uh, you're going to start getting letters from all those organizations, assuming their staff aren't furloughed, um, asking you, uh, you know, to come back into compliance with that because every time they use their course, You've named them as a as an additional insured and are providing them protection, and they're expecting that as part of the contract that you sold. And so, I would be cautious um, for organizations that are choosing that to at least be aware of what the consequences are and read through those contracts. And every one of those contracts is going to have different language. Um, it's going to be in a different state. It's going to have different jurisdictions and different penalties associated with it. Um, and, and can you? Temporarily sheltering the sword without general liability could cost more than what you're um, saving if they uh, come after you for those. Certainly. And I know that many um, lease agreements, things like that for parks and zip tours uh, have insurance requirements on those as well. So if you're thinking about that from the operator side too, um, the leaseholder for your property will not be happy if he is no longer covered for insurance for things that happen uh, on his plot of land. So yeah, important things to to keep in mind for sure. Thank you. Um, Charles, any last bits of advice for people moving forward? What things to, positive things to, to keep in mind as we go forward? I don't want to end this on a, uh, by the way, pay your insurance or you're going to be in trouble. So <laughs> what are some positive things people can, uh, can do to take some forward steps here? So, um, yeah, so I have, I have on this wall in my office, uh, a quote by, um, Jeff Bezos, and it says, what's dangerous is not to evolve, right? And I used to work for corporate Walmart. We always used to say, turn on a dime. So I think the key word is be adaptable. I mean, nobody anticipated this. I think one of the greatest things about our company has been, hey, you might have been the general manager and you are now doing warehousing or whatever, and just be adaptable. Um, and, and, and one of the other things is go look for possible diversification if you could do it with a low cost, you know, whether it's, if you have the opportunity to do some type of bike tour, watch your insurance on the bikes, but, um, but, um, you know, just look for additional revenue streams that you could do at a low cost, um, high profitability to it. Uh, but to John's point, like it can't be like incremental of one or 2%. It's, it's gotta be fairly substantial to make the juice worth the squeeze. So um, be adaptable. I mean, and then for us, it's, it's all been, been about diversification. We've really 
um, been able to survive uh, within within this environment uh, just be just because we've been diversified. All right, Lee, I think you've coined a new phrase. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're going to give you credit for that. So I don't know who first came up with it, but um, I love it. And I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, during our call, you had made a really, in my mind, a profound statement is that what we're dealing with, with the exception of somebody living in a cavern, is we're dealing with outdoors and fresh air and what a positive thing it still is to provide to people. Yeah. Sorry for the dig there, Charles, but yeah. <laughs> you've got fresh air. You've got, got fresh air. air. You're all good. <laughs> um, Lee, how are you staying positive through this and how would you recommend that others go through and, and do this as well? Yeah, we, we've really tried to keep that in our messaging that we all need fresh air, we need activity, we need our endorphins just kicking in and like going home with goosebumps saying, man, that was awesome. And I don't mean it just for the guests. I also mean it for the guides because the guides are dealing with people that are afraid of heights and they're facing those fears and they're pushing through. So kind of that storytelling, both on your messaging to the guests and the potential guests in your marketing and, but internally reminding the guides because a lot of them, Man, that, that's their favorite stories. Their favorite days is when they help people push through their fears or they helped them grow. And so that's, that's really important to us. And I know there's a lot of places out there who believe in, in we need less screen time. We need more. No one remembers their favorite video game. They remember their favorite adventure together. So that's, uh, that's something we're thinking about and trying to, how do we tell stories around that? And how do we promote and encourage that? We think that's more important than almost anything. I mean, just, I could go on and on, but I don't want to, I'll get off the soapbox. Um, just this closing thoughts since we got, so we try to have strongly held beliefs, um, have strong beliefs that are loosely held. And that's kind of back to the, is the juice worth the squeeze or man, I really, we're going to do this as long as I think it's true. Oh, I don't think it's true anymore. Okay. Now we're going to do this. Uh, uh, but, and, and the last thing is we've tried to always maintain our quality. We didn't want to like cut our, our costs so low that it would damage our reputation or, or cheapen the experience. And so we were not willing to compromise on that at all. You know, I think that's very short-term focused if you cut your quality. So, Yeah, I think that can be one of the dangers um, that people start cutting the important things that really make this what it is. So, well, just some takeaways from our conversations that I've kind of thrown out to kind of wrap this up. Um, one certainly is to be adaptable in your operations, be adaptable in your business model, in your staffing model, even your pricing model, as we've heard. Um, also, don't be afraid to get expert help, whether it's your banker, your CPA, your attorney, anything like that. Um, these are the times when they typically really shine and can help you through some really tough situations. Um, be intentional with your finances, whether that's taking loans, cutting expenses, um, spending where the juice is worth the squeeze. And uh, I had to put that in there in the last minute. And be sure you don't compromise on quality. We have a long way to go, but by taking intentional steps, operators can and will come through the pandemic more resilient than ever. 
We hope that these huddles and the other resources developed by Sam and Adventure Park Insider magazines to assist during this crisis have helped you all stay connected, informed, and to navigate these challenging times. If they have, consider supporting us as a vital source of information. Learn more at www.saminfo.com and www.adventureparkinsider.com. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The PodSam advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Wintry Mix podcast guy. I am Sarah Bordeaf, and thank you for listening to PodSam.